Hello everyone and welcome to Advancing the Profession Season 2. Yes, I have finally done it. More than a year, well over a year since Season 1 concluded in October 2021. I have bowed to not quite overwhelming pressure from the field to put in place the second season of Advancing the Profession. If you aren't familiar with Season 1, go check it out. If you are, then you will know that this podcast is all about advanced level volunteer engagement so we're trying to talk to people have conversations raise issues and get everybody thinking about topics that are beyond the basics of volunteer management beyond the basics of volunteer leadership and i'm really looking forward to this second season we've got some fantastic guests coming up and our first episode is with Karina sadler from texas in the united states Karina and i have known each other for a little bit we were fortunate enough to actually meet in person in the days when we could do that at conferences back at Points of Light in Minnesota a few years ago. Karina will talk more about this later on. We work together on the editorial team for Engage, the global journal for leaders of volunteer engagement. Karina works in public services, government services, depending on what you call it, wherever you are in the world. And I thought it would be really interesting in this first episode to talk to Karina a little bit about her role and how volunteer engagement, volunteer management, volunteer leadership in public and government services might differ from the kind of more traditional nonprofit settings that most of us operate in and think about. And we'll also touch a little bit as well on the volunteering for the field that Karina does. So Karina, welcome to Advancing the Profession and thank you for kicking off season two. It is a pleasure to have you with us. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm truly honored to be featured. Well, we are honored to have you here. So why don't we start nice and easy with tell the listeners about you, about your background, about how you got into volunteer management. That's always a good story. How you found yourself to the role that you're in today. Yeah, so I am in Plano, Texas. This is North Texas, right outside of Dallas. I'm a Texas girl. I grew up here, you know, growing up in a Mexican household in North Texas, a lot of opportunities, a lot of, of great activities for, for families, but volunteerism really wasn't something that my parents talked to me about or that, you know, in the, in the Hispanic culture, it's not like formal volunteerism isn't something that's like a big thing, applying and applications and all the formalities. So when I started volunteering, it was really on my own. I was very independent as a teen, about 12 years old, began volunteering with my public library. They were very welcoming. They removed barriers. I was typically the only Hispanic team there volunteering. And I just, I loved it. At that point, I didn't realize that our public library system in Texas is part of our local government. So the right. entity that runs our cities or towns. So that was my first kind of connection to local government. And so now looking at a career of 17 years professionally, it all started when I was 12 with volunteering. I then volunteered at an older adult recreation center, and that one was huge. I mean, those staff members mentored me as professionals without even knowing it, encouraged me to go to college. My parents did not graduate from a high school, so going to college for me was a huge worry and something that I didn't really know if it was for me. But these women in local government, through volunteerism, put me under their wing and said, yes, it is for you. And so that was a really incredible experience because of volunteering. 
and specifically with these local government facilities, like a recreation center, a library. Also, I did museums, Meals on Wheels, other types of nonprofits. I went to university and they had a consortium on volunteerism there. So they offered an undergraduate certificate program in volunteer management. And then they had a minor in leadership of community and nonprofit organizations. And I just fell in love with the profession, realizing through volunteering that people get paid money to do most of these positions. I was floored to understand really what government careers, like the vast variety of government careers there were, really opened my eyes. And then the University Education of Volunteer Engagement with books by Rick Lynch, Steve McCurley, From the Top Down with you, Rob, and, and Susan. Text, those are my textbooks. So it was a great experience. And then I jumped right into a volunteer coordinator role directly from college. So okay. when I say 17 years in my career, it was because I came straight from university to volunteer management. Loads of parallels, actually. Strangely, with my career as well, because I went straight into volunteer management straight out of university. The only difference is you graduated. I got into it because I dropped out. <laughs> I didn't do nonprofit management or anything interesting like that at university. I did physics, which is why I ended up dropping out. But yeah, that's really cool. And, and tell me a little bit there. You mentioned about the kind of Hispanic community not having a real history of of formal volunteerism i'm just interested in that generally and different cultures approaches to volunteering why is that is is that changing through the generations you know i can only speak from my perspective from from my family and my community here in, in north texas but i felt like you know the hispanic community does a lot of informal volunteering yeah, we yeah. support our family. We support our in our faith organizations, at churches, and other types of of clubs, athletics, and other things that that might not be seen as volunteerism, but we are volunteering. We're helping our neighbors. We're supporting family. And that time, like the t- time, is precious. And I think to leave your community to go out and volunteer elsewhere, it's that time that you're losing. And so I think everything is. What I've seen has been really close knit to your community. I think it's different. You know, if someone had an experience, I just don't think my parents had the volunteerism experience. They were working very hard and and their off time was for for family and for maybe getting some sleep every now and then. And they are watching the Dallas Cowboys games. And so I just think, you know, now I think the younger generation of the Hispanic community, at least in the U.S., is seeing service differently. I don't think is is being turned away, but I feel like they want to see their community with them. Sure. Like it was is challenging to go and volunteer and be the only person from your community there. Yeah. It, you know, you want that experience of seeing like we're coming together. And I I think there's great examples of that out there. You make a really, really important point in there that just because a community is not involved in formal volunteering doesn't mean they're not volunteering. If people haven't heard it, go back and listen to the episode in season one that I did with Pfizer Venzant, all about equality, diversity, inclusion, equity, access, justice in volunteering, and just that mindset shift that people need to do. So tell me about your role now. What do you do? What's your job title? What does a kind of typical day look like? Do you directly work with volunteers? Do you have a team? Just kind of give us a sense of what volunteer engagement for the city of Plano looks like? 
So I am, you know, I'm a unique department within our city government. So I am a department. I'm a volunteer resources supervisor. A lot of letters in that title. Um <laughs> You know, I do here in the field when we introduce ourselves with our titles and when your first word is volunteer and people's eyes glaze over and they assume you are a volunteer and you're not a paid staff member. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel that, but that is my title. I do have a full-time volunteer coordinator and a part-time administrative assistant with me at Volunteers in Plano, which is the name of our department within the city of Plano. So what uh, I am full-time. I've been with my organization for 14 and a half years. Previously, I was in recreation, working with older adults, which was my major, gerontology. I did work with volunteers, but not as a, as my title. And so we are a centralized volunteer program for the city. It's, it, it is still unique. There are some others out there that I've tried to connect with, but that means that as a department, we can work with any other department in the city on community engagement and volunteerism. For example, we run our animal shelter volunteer program. We administer it, we screen, we interview, we place, we run the, the database, all the work on the handbook. We do all of that. And then we prepare volunteers to be on site with the supervisors at that department who are the subject matter experts in their field. Okay. And they have to specific training. Sometimes we do have volunteers here at Volunteers in Plano, unpaid interns, college students, high school students. So we do have office space for that, for special projects, pro bono volunteering, just different volunteers that want to come into City Hall and, and support the programs. You know, pre-COVID, we were seeing about 10,000 volunteers a year across our entire city. We we're a population of about 360,000 in Plano. We have lots of nonprofits in the city as well. We're so close to Dallas and Fort Worth. We have many universities, community colleges. We really have a lot of people kind of clustered in this region of North Texas. So we also liaise with and provide mentorship and support for nonprofits to kind of give them advice and consult about volunteerism because of the expertise that I have on my team. And we also do some employee volunteerism as well, encouraging our employees who are city staff to give or to serve. So a typical day sounds like it's pretty busy or there's no such thing. It is very busy. And we have teen volunteer program. We have a court order community service program. We have okay. special events. We have corporate volunteering. We have volunteers at our police department, fire department, administrative offices, the public libraries, which we have five. We have a big environmental education division, our convention and visitors bureau, just all the things. And we're, we're always trying to rebuild our capacity because of COVID, because yeah. we shrunk when we were closed. You know, in local government, our programs just stopped. Our our facilities just stopped. So unlike some of our nonprofit partners who were on the front lines and doing such incredible work at food pantries in healthcare, our programs did not. So that restarting was a completely different experience and leveraging like our database, we left it on during right. COVID. People could take an action and to, to sign up. And so that messaging of they're out there, how do you get them to to come out and, and to begin serving has been a challenge, but we've had great success in leveraging our communications across all these 
school programs and, and finding the right fit for people. And what's the recovery rate been like in terms of volunteering? Because I don't know what it's like there, but we're certainly seeing here in the UK and I'm seeing it in other countries as well. Loads of people who understandably, as you say, kind of step back from their volunteering during COVID because of the restrictions or because of their, their age and their vulnerability, at least before people got vaccinated. That recovery rate is pretty slow and that people for a variety of reasons just either aren't coming back or when they do come back aren't giving the hours and organizations are having to shift more emphasis onto bringing in new people and those new people have got a very different attitude and outlook to volunteering than the people before so how's that kind of working out in your program i would agree with that i think for so long, like our program was closed for a year and a half, our our community really lost that reflex of looking for something to do, right. right? Of searching for ways to get involved and to get engaged. A year and a half, two years, that's a long time to not not do those actions. And so I think getting people to find that reflex again and to fill their time again with volunteerism has been hard because they filled that time with other things that has replaced that time. And so to give up your new crocheting hobby or your new woodworking, leisure time on the weekends, and to think about switching that to something else, it takes thought. It takes a decision of, yeah, do I want to leave home? Do I want to go out and do this? And uh, I think the way that we pitch volunteering, the way that we're connecting to what the volunteers are really motivated by and what they feel connected to if it hasn't changed already, it, it needs to change because the way we phrase things and talked about things pre-COVID is just that time has passed. I definitely see that having to go out right to my waiting list to people that have never served before. And then in our communities, new volunteer coordinators struggling. They don't have these tried and true communication skills and these pitches that they've worked on for years. They're new and it's hard for them to to find these new people and to make that that sale of of giving back all at the same time as demand for services going up and the pressure on them to get those people in yeah i wouldn't want to be starting out in the field right now in our networks we see people that were hired in 2020 2021 up until now and i think the leadership messaging they have to understand that our volunteers want different things their time is more valuable they are looking for fulfilling activities. Two hours is no longer like not that long of a shift. It's too, you know, two hours has turned into something different. I feel like it means more because of the way that we value time now. And and because of people working from home, and some of the people working from home that spent time on commuting and thinking, gosh, look at that time, right? The time that I'm no longer commuting now. And really thinking about what it means. So now they're looking at their leisure time, their off time. Yeah, absolutely. So we've kind of gone down that line, which was inspired by you saying your programs really were affected by the pandemic in a way that maybe many nonprofits weren't. What do you see as the kind of the main differences between doing a volunteer engagement role in a public service government sector environment? compared to 
your colleagues, our colleagues who work in nonprofit settings? How does it differ? What it was just some of the kind of practical and, and conceptual ways in which that differs? So for my program, we are placing volunteers in our city facilities. And so they are set hours of operation. They have a hierarchy of a staff leadership. We have policies and procedures that are sometimes state required or ordinances that we have to follow for the city. Sometimes those are not are not shared by our, our nonprofit friends. The way that we train our view of risk, I think, is also different because we're bringing in people who are high percentage of, of our volunteers live in the city. We don't have a lot of commuters that are that are driving in. And so because of that, they are residents. Many of them are homeowners. They are literally our neighbors. Yeah. And so because of that, there is a higher level of expectation of what they expect to encounter when serving with us. Then maybe they would be, I don't know, want to say more forgiving of a different type of organization, but for us, they are taxpayers. And so their their tax dollars fund these facilities, these staff positions, and buy these pieces of equipment. And so they are also many of them voters. And so they vote for our bond money, right? That's money that is set aside to fund many projects within the city. And so a lot of our volunteers are well-educated, have an interest Right in government, what's happening, watching, listening. And so their feedback as where they sit within our community and, and how they're connected to our operations is at a different level. And what I am very proud of is the level of, of transparency that we have in go- as government entity when we bring this many volunteers in to our programs. They are working behind closed doors next to staff shoulder to shoulder they see their tax dollars exactly what's happening within the city and they return they are happy and they're advocates for our programs because we we do get funding from other sources sometimes and some of our departments do qualify for grants or for other things and so the support of our community really shows that they believe in the programs and services that we're offering to continue to fund those, like our recycling programs, like all of our free library programs, having different available you know, services, mobile outreach opportunities that go out, that all those things cost money. We have some friends groups within our, our organization, like for the library, that, that are fundraising arms. But again, the that transparency of having 10,000 people engaged with the city they're watching and they are happy and it's incredible to see the partnership and the relationships between paid staff and volunteers. You know, whenever we, in the UK, we talk about volunteers getting involved in public services, this is partly because of the way that public services are different in this country than they are in the US. There's always a voice that talks about, well, why are we having volunteers doing stuff in public services? Why aren't we just, you know, paying paid professionals to do stuff in public services? Do you experience that, do you think, in your experience of public sector volunteering at all or more so? Does it does staff raise those issues about tensions between volunteers and paid staff and perceptions of volunteers are out here to take our jobs and all of that? I think one of the great reasons to have a professional, well-trained 
volunteer engagement leader in an organization is to look at things like this. When I receive volunteer opportunities that are requested, I, I evaluate them, right? I look at risk. I also look at the perception of placing volunteers in the new role that I receive. How is this going to be viewed? How will the volunteer feel doing this work? Is it necessary? Is this going to benefit the volunteer in any way? Will they receive a reference, a job skills, a connection to their community, a connection to something that is a motivator for them? Because I take time to look at it, I can go back to the department if I have a concern that volunteers will begin this role and look around and say, they just don't want to pay someone to do this. This is a paid job. I never want our volunteers to feel that way. And I talk about that publicly because our volunteers, like all volunteers, are very savvy, right? They will sniff out any inkling that they are being used. Yeah. And that's why I never say I use volunteers. Yeah. I don't I don't like that. We engage volunteers and partner with the community because the minute a volunteer feels like they're being used or duped or just doing the work because we don't want to pay someone, it ruins the the volunteerism experience. And then it makes them distrust this whole process that we've had them go through with an application and whatever screening it is. And when you lose trust for government, it has a more of a ripple effect to me. And so we have to look at that, right? We have to determine, is this an appropriate volunteer opportunity? Or is this a new staff member that doesn't quite yet know what volunteerism looks like? And I need to train them on how to create a volunteer opportunity, mm-hmm. what's appropriate, what will be a meaningful experience for the volunteer. And if it's not meaningful, how can we connect it to the success of our daily operations? that they can see that their support leads to the doors being open, programs being held, even if it's not the most interpersonal experience. Because in government, we are not going into people's homes in my programs. We're not handing out food or hygiene kits in most of our activities. We do have some homeless outreach, but that's very specific, very specialized. So for government, our volunteer opportunities serve the larger community. They're very much facility and operational base, walking dogs at the shelter, maybe painting house numbers on curbs for homes so that our, our emergency personnel can find homes easier in neighborhoods. So there is that benefit of having a leader of volunteers involved in this process before positions are released because there is that, what you described. So many great things in that answer <laughs> that would justify a whole podcast episode on its own. I, absolutely with you. I think we should ban the use of the word use when it comes to talking about volunteers. Liza Dyer and I talked about this years and years and years ago, the, the hashtag we use things, not people. And yeah, you know, I also it, don't say that volunteers save money. No, absolutely not. In government, money tells a story. But for me, I, I say that to my leadership all the time. And if other leaders choose to use these phrases, that it's not my my voice. But for me, I always say, you know, it is an added value because 
unlike my nonprofit friends, if my volunteers don't show up, we are not paying people to do the same work. So we are not saving the city money. We are adding the value of their expertise and their time. And that's something that I have to continue to relay to anyone that I speak with or that is going to represent my volunteer program, because I feel like the leader of volunteers has to make a stand on that and push for saying we don't use people. They don't really, in my setting, don't save money. Now, in other nonprofit settings, they do actually save money Mm -hmm. because they would pay people to do that work if their volunteers don't show up. I've seen several examples of that. So I preface that by saying in this structure of local government, we are not going to go and and pay other people to do this work. So it is is a complementary, like a complement to the work of our paid staff. It is an added value. And I'll keep saying it for the next 14 and a half years, I think. Absolutely. Keep sharing that. I I think the other thing when you were when you were talking a minute ago, it made me think of of two things that that Andy Fryer has always said. One is that he's never met a volunteer whose motivation to volunteer was to put somebody out of a job. You know, and and your approach is very much about actually treating people who volunteer with the respect and intelligence that they have, that they would sniff out in a heartbeat if they were being exploited or used in any sense like that. And I, I don't think we factor that into our thinking often enough. But the other aspect of it was how crucial your role is as a leader in that influencing. And Andy's done a lot about the kind of evolution of volunteer management as a profession and going from a very people-oriented to a very kind of paper systems process-oriented and has been advocating for years that we need to become much more influential, we need to become much more persuasive, we need to be looking much more outside of the kind of systems and processes that loads of people are really comfortable working in, but just to influence others and educate others and provide that real leadership. And the way that you've described doing that within your city and within your program is is superb. What do you think are some of the lessons that our colleagues working in a non-profit setting could possibly learn from volunteer engagement in public government services? It's a great question. I teach a volunteer management certificate program for an organization here in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I train typically brand new leaders of volunteers who have been in their role less than a year. Most of them are in nonprofits. And so I hear in the classroom setting exactly what's happening to them. And it's across the board what their experience is. Some of them are coming from other organizations, other professions. Some are are new and fresh from, from university. And many of them are departments of one. And that struggle to advocate for themselves, to seek professional development opportunities, To see themselves as a leader is challenging, and it's not something that their leadership tells them to do. Right. So when I train them, it's it's like opening the door because there's no one else in their organization that leads volunteers. And when I say there are resources, there are podcasts like Rob Jackson's, there are websites, there are study groups and local associations. Their eyes, you know, get huge. And I think 
from my perspective, I do have the opportunity of having professional development funds, of being able to train. And so to my local government group that I have, which are all government leaders of volunteers, their struggles are different in, in a classroom setting that I hear from them because their focus is much more on the systems and the procedures and the structures. And we know our confines of, of working in local government. We know what, where our ceiling is and where we're going to butt up against challenge. The non, my nonprofit students don't have that as defined. So I tried to share with them that there are resources that you can create systems and, and create your well-oiled machine of your program and make it strong to where if you're sick one day, it doesn't have to all fall apart because you're not there, mm -hmm. even as a department of one, right? You have to advocate to get support from your paid staff. You have to establish volunteer leadership if, if it's a very small organization. And they're receptive. But what I've also seen in these first-year students is they don't yet see this as a career. Whereas my local government group does see the career path of volunteer engagement, whatever their title is. But the nonprofit sector, I'm not sure that that connection, that this is a career field. I don't know when that lands, but I, I try when I have them in my, my classroom. But I think the larger brand new nonprofit volunteer coordinators are not yet plugged into that path. Why do you think that is? I think it's challenging to go into an organization where a lot of people are hands-off volunteers. They think it's all up to this one position yeah, and that's it. And when your boss or your leadership in your nonprofit has zero experience with volunteerism or volunteer management, the messaging that you receive right from the top might be like, oh, we want you to grow a volunteer program, but we don't really know what that means for our organization. And yeah. we're going to just assume that you can do it all. Yeah. But we don't really know what all the pieces that you need will be. And also you have to do these other duties as assigned. <laughs> and I mean, it's wild. I mean, hearing what's going on, all different types of organizations, I feel for them having to train 100% of their volunteers by themselves being expected to go and do the work of volunteers if the volunteers don't show up, things that are not on the job description when they apply. Yeah. I always remember, and I know you've just done a, we'll, we'll get onto this maybe in a minute, but I know you've just done a, a, a book review of the Help I Don't Have Enough Time Guide to Volunteer Management. And I remember one of the first times I got to meet Susan Ellis, where she was running a workshop based around that book that she'd written with Katie Campbell. And the bit that I have always carried with me for more than 20 years in that book is when they sit down and they break down a volunteer manager's job description into its constituent parts. Not like eight short statements like recruit, but what does recruit involve? What does support involve? What does manage involve? And, and I think a lot of people who come into this profession don't appreciate that when they start. But more importantly, and this is why I mention it, so many of the people who manage those people really don't get it and don't understand it. And I'm completely with you on that one. Let's change tack a little bit. 
because you not only provide that leadership role in your city and your program and your kind of day job, but you also provide a leadership role through the volunteering that you do in the field. And I'm a big advocate, have been for years, partly because people like Susan Ellis and Steve McCurley and Rick Lynch nagged me to be a leader in the field and step up and do things. So I know you're really active as a volunteer in the in the profession and in the world of volunteer engagement. Tell me a little bit about what you do, but also what you get from that. How's that helped you in your career? I love the field. I'm a probably a super fan, for those that know that term from reality TV, I'm a super fan of, of the field of volunteer engagement. So being able to serve alongside people that I truly respect because of their work is incredible. Originally, I was really motivated to see myself as a leader in these groups within the profession from my predecessor, Robin. She was a founding member of Alive, a founding member of NAPPLUG, which is the National Association of Volunteer Programs in Local Government. And so when she retired and I was promoted, you know, she really instilled that in me to to give back in this way, right? To share expertise, to promote the development of other leaders of volunteers for the good of the global profession, mm. really outside of, of my, my bubble here. And so I served a term on the NAVPLUG board. I believe next I joined the ALIVE committee. I served as a membership committee, a member for the Association of Leaders in Volunteer Engagement, which is our U.S. National Association. I had so much fun. I got to work with people like Dana Litwin and Gretchen Jordan and Kayla Paulson, like so many people come in and out of the membership group. But I felt it as a way to find my voice, right? My voice for volunteer engagement. What is it that I have that I could help someone else, that I could really be a connector? I love I call it like a catalyst for good. Like I love giving people resources, pointing them to the right direction because it's so frustrating when you ask for help and someone says, Google it. Yeah. It's like, and so sending exactly the right volunteer pro blog post or sending exactly the right podcast episode from Rob or Meridian. I love being that beacon, I think, to to other people in the field to say, it's okay to not know Absolutely. what you're doing. We've all been there. And there are literally articles and blogs and podcasts and things that will inspire you and will help you in this moment. Because we don't want you to leave the field. And that's something that I know during COVID, we lost volunteer managers to other sectors, to other other professions. We need new leaders of volunteers yeah. right, for the next generation. For our jobs to be seen as professional, we need an incoming group that will feel the same way that we feel about this work. So my Alive membership committee connected me to new people. I got to make membership phone calls, which I, that's my personality type, to welcome them and give them what they need. Many of them were studying for their CBA, one of the global credentials for the field. And so I joined the CBA Outreach Committee, uh, supporting FISA and the board there at CBA. And outreach is a perfect fit, again, for my, my strengths. I really like to play to my strengths, not try to go into the accounting side of the finance committee, really play to what brings me joy, how I can impact 
other professionals. So through CBA, I was invited to speak at lots of different types of settings, connecting with incoming CBAs, supporting them. And then when Rob, two years ago, Engage was relaunch or when e-volunteerism was relaunching, got that email. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring. I've got some time. So I'm just going to see if, you know, y'all needed help with social media. And I love Engage. I mean, working as a volunteer with Engage is such a creative outlet for me. It allows me to support the profession, support authors, which I'm a big reader. You mentioned my book reviews. So I love to read. Um, I love the idea that people take so much time to put all their thoughts together and actually bring something to the field, right? Their unique perspectives, their advice, their their experience. And being able to promote that and work with people like Aaron Spink and Tracy O'Neill and Andy and Meridian and so many, you know, the rest of the editorial team has been a real honor. I hope others are, are reading the articles and following us on social media because there's a lot of free content out there that you can get from Engage. And again, we need more voices yeah. from the field. We need a presence online, in writing, in books, because if we go quiet, we lose the momentum that we had. All the things that the people like Susan promoted in in Katie Campbell and they had so much faith and hope for where we could go and it it has to be voices I love diverse voices voices from different types of organizations people that yeah it's their first year that's okay you you have your unique experience and then those that have been 20 25 we still need their mentorship and that passion really comes through in in how you're talking about it and uh, you know i can remember was 28 and a half years i started in this field and it wasn't long after i started in this field that i'm i you know i met people like susan and and some of those leaders and i find it quite strange now nearly 30 years on you know susan always used to talk about me and andy as her retirement plan and and now Andy and I are starting to think about well who's going to be our retirement plan and that kind of generational thing going through and I think it's, it's great to hear people like you and and others in our field who have got that passion and that enthusiasm which is something being infectious has been a bad thing for the last couple of years but I think it's a really really good thing to to get people engaged and doing more of that kind of volunteering. I don't know how many people listening to this are part of the Engage community on social media or part of the Engage membership as subscribers, but Engage Bar, a small team of us, is is entirely volunteer run. And anything that you see on social media has come from Karina, Meridian, Naomi, Teresa as our social media team. They, you know, it's four people who are doing this entirely voluntarily and doing an absolutely fantastic job of curating resources that are being shared right around the world for volunteer leadership so thank you thank you for all that you do on that one it's been great to have some proper time to catch up with you other than in like quick meetings to do with engage and stuff like that in this second series what i want to do is i'm going to ask every one of my guests if they would share what they think is one piece of wisdom 
for leaders of volunteer engagement. From all of your experiences, what would your one piece of wisdom that people can take away from this conversation be? My first thought is I want more leaders of volunteers to be prepared to take action for their volunteers. It, it can be uncomfortable. It can be a challenging thing. But when we receive information from our volunteers, feedback, they catch us in the hallway, an email, we are then tasked with doing something with that information, especially if it's troublesome. You know, CVA does ethics training. Part of becoming a CVA is, is learning about ethics. And I feel like when you have something in your hands that maybe makes your stomach turn or you're worried, we have to be prepared to take action. So new leaders of volunteers, or even those that are in the settings where they, they really don't have conflict, we have to prepare because when it's quiet, it's the time to prepare. So understanding and getting training about advocating for the voice of volunteers, about difficult conversations, about ethics discussions, we have to bring the perspective of our volunteers to leadership. And if you are uncomfortable, take time to get comfortable, practice, go to your, your local association, find a mentor. You know, I do. I, if I'm having a difficult situation, I will follow the, you know, the ethics pathway and then practice what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, who do I need to talk to? Because taking action is such an important part of being a leader of volunteers. And our volunteers sometimes have no ability to take action in our organizations. They need us to push forward what's happening. And I just encourage you to be strong, to be courageous. Let the field know if you need help. Don't let it go too long. Take the action. Brilliant. What a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Karina. Really appreciate it. I think you've kicked off season two of Advancing the Profession in style. It's going to be a tall act to follow you on there. So thank you very much indeed for your time today. And uh, we will see each other on an engage call sometime soon. But if people want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? What's the easiest way? Yeah, I am a big fan of LinkedIn. So feel free to reach me there. I also have professional pages on Facebook and Instagram at Karina in Plano. Awesome. Thank you very much indeed. And that's it for episode one of season two of Advancing the Profession. We will see you for episode two very shortly. Thank you again, Karina. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks so much.